The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Tech Cat Show with host Lori H. Schwartz. Each week we hear from established leaders in the technology and consumer industry. Finding out the scoop should never be this much fun. Now, here is your host, Lori H. Schwartz. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Tech Cat Show. Very exciting, very exciting episode today with the fabulous Brad Barons, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Center for the Digital Future at the USC's Annenberg School. And I'll tell you, he'll tell you all about that. Brad and I have been colleagues for a long time, and he is literally uh, one of the biggest brains around. Um, <laughs> um, and sometimes we out-geek each other in science fiction land. And he's also written um, some science fiction, so we'll hear about that as well. But ladies and gentlemen, in that Tech Cat audience, let's have a big hand for Brad Barron. Hey there. All right, everyone calm down. Calm down. Okay. <laughs> it's a wild studio audience, Brad. Fantastic. So, so tell us tell us all about you. The well, you have, that, that makes you Brad. Uh, well, I have a weird uh, professional background. And so frequently people ask me what I've been up to, and I describe things to them, and they look a little bit confused. So I started my career as a Shakespearean. I have a doctorate in Shakespeare studies. Uh, taught Shakespeare for many years. When I became interested in things outside of the academy, I wound up working in Hollywood as a story analyst for some time. I worked for DreamWorks. I worked for Sidney Pollack, a lot of other people, Bette Midler. Uh, round about that time, the internet came a calling. Uh, the uh, the big dot-com boom, which turned into the dot-pocalypse shortly thereafter. I'd been building uh, websites for my students uh, at, at Berkeley for years, so it was a logical move into there. I worked for a couple of crazy startups uh, before the dot-pocalypse, wound up uh, brand side in the marketing department at Earthlink for a few years, and then got recruited into a company called iMedia Communications, which is, Lori, where you and I first met. And this was a, a daily media publication covering the intersection of the internet and marketing. I uh, did that for a number of years, wound up becoming the worldwide head of programming for DMG's World Media. I touched 54 shows a year all over the world. Um, along the lines, along those those same lines and at the same time, I was still interested in research and became involved with the Center for the Digital Future. Uh, the founder, Jeffrey Cole, is a, became a very good friend of mine. And so a few years Although I wound up becoming a senior research fellow there, I have my own company as a very small boutique consultancy called Big Digital Idea Consulting. A lot of my time, however, is spent in my role as the chief strategy officer at the Center for the Digital Future. That, um, the Jeffrey Cole is actually a fairly um, well-known person in the space. Um, and I know you've interviewed him a lot, um, and he's still continuously doing the, that year-long research that's helping feed into what you're doing. Is that correct? 
Sure. Uh, yes. The center, uh, what distinguishes the center from the myriad other research entities that are out there is that we've been surveying the same seven, uh, excuse me, the same 2,000 families for 17 years. So it's a longitudinal database like no other. We also organize the World Internet Project, which does similar research in about 40 other countries. I'm the project lead for the future of transportation, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, very shortly. Uh, I'm also uh, this summer gearing in to develop the survey for the future of health. I'm very involved also with the future of money. These are topical surveys that are extending our longitudinal work in uh, more depthfully into other areas. We also, by the way, have the sports media project, which is very exciting. So um, just for, for us, um, you know, geeks who, wa- who want to understand the data that you're learning but don't actually do research ourselves, how does it work with, with how you guys are doing your research? Like, can you give us a sense of, of how the research actually, you know, happens? Well, the, the field research is usually conducted by uh, Bovitz Research and Greg Bovitz, is just a terrific researcher out there. In terms of what we're interested in, the thing that's powerful about longitudinal research is you see how people's answers change over time. So there's observed behavior and then there's reported behavior. And uh, with the surveys, we're mostly dealing with reported behavior. How people report their behavior uh, and how that shifts is the most powerful thing that we have. And so, for example, we have a pattern that we're seeing again and again, which is a pattern of rejection making an exception and then acceptance. And we saw this very early on with people putting their credit cards online. At first they thought, oh gosh, I'm not putting my credit card online, that's dangerous, I'm gonna be the victim of identity theft. And then they said, well, you know, the websites that I go to, those are trustworthy. I think those are okay. So they make an exception for Amazon or eBay or what have you. And then later on, they just say, screw it. It's all fine. I'm not going to be uh, damaged by identity theft online because they haven't been. So that pattern is something that unfolds, uh, which has becomes visible when you're dealing with the same people over time. Um, it's just amazing to me because um, you are someone, and so is Jeffrey, and so are some of our colleagues who really just understand the overall trends in a lot of different topics and how they weave in and out of each other, right? Um, and, and I know you're, you're not doing this anymore, but for a long time you did um, oversee content at a variety of conferences, as you mentioned. And in terms of that, if you're doing that kind of work, like what, what do you look for? What do you think people are looking for when they want to learn in this space? You know, like what, what is it that they're trying to gain from going to different shows and reading research papers? You know, is it really just so they know what they're talking about? Or is there some bigger sort of special sauce happening there? Uh, that, that's a difficult question to answer because you've got different populations going to events for different reasons. Um, and you have different ways that events can be constructed. So the way that's very common is the educational metaphor where people are coming to learn. Uh, the Most of the events that I did actually were much more along uh, the, the lines of a marketplace where we would bring people who had a lot of budget, buyers, and people who wanted a lot of budget, sellers, together. And it was this delicate balance between content, the program, the networking, uh, and the place that you were. And so those are about serving a community and creating a robust marketplace. When it comes to research uh, in that kind of event, by and large, people want 
applicable insights. They want to know not only what uh, is going to happen, but also how it affects them. And so the most successful people who are sharing research as opposed to case studies or having some fireside chat about, you know, the latest ad tech or martech whiz-bang gizmo. Uh, when it comes to actually presenting research, you really want to build a bridge from this esoteric piece of information to how it affects how you do your job. Right. And before we dig more into the actual future of transportation, which is, you know, where you're centered on right now, tell us a little bit also about like what I just think it's so interesting. I was on a radio show a few weeks ago talking to some authors about what drives a person to write a book. So you wrote a book. Can you tell us about the book? Well, I've written a couple of books. Uh, my my doctoral dissertation was on Shakespeare, and that was 400 pages about, effectively about one line in Shakespeare. It just happens to pop up in two different plays. But the book I think you're talking about is Red Cross. And Red Cross is a near-future dystopian science fiction novel, which is a, a big mouthful, but way of saying, you know, relatively soon, how are a bunch of technology trends going to uh, develop? And what are the ways that we really should be thinking about those things? And can we see around corners. Uh, there's a lot of people out there right now who are doing uh, exercises in science fiction and science fiction prototyping in order to find a way of seeing around corners. What Red Cross was about is there was a, a murder mystery adventure story, but it happened in a world which had a couple of big questions. Uh, and the one question was, what happens if your health insurance and your credit card become the same thing? And if you have high cholesterol and you eat a pepperoni pizza uh, and your premium goes up, um, and that was a, a kind of a nightmare vision for people, particularly people who love pepperoni pizza and have high cholesterol. <laughs> uh, but I also threw in a couple of other things that made the, the urgency of that a little bit higher. Uh, and the first thing was we made it a cash poor society so that there was this kind of global surveillance of every purchase, no matter how small. And the second was uh, thinking through a bunch of things that people are afraid of today, we also created, or I also created, these things called cyber plagues. So people who were uh, very sensitive to electromagnetic fields, for example, or who were allergic to petroleum fumes, taking the technology we have and continuing to make it more and more pervasive and more and more powerful, the human body can only deal with so much. We are the most adaptable organism on the planet in the history of the universe, but frequently individuals adapt more slowly than the species does. And so this was a question about how people did or did not adapt. That all sounds very dry. I will say that, uh, you know, it's actually, uh, it is primarily uh, a book with a plot that people are moving through. <laughs> well, it sounds really smart, but it, but it is really interesting and fun. And I read it and, um, what what I love about it is it feeds into what you're doing for a living, and it feeds into this idea that um, all of uh, all of the things that we do that sort of uh, propel us to the future, all of these technology explosions and disruption, we literally come from someone making up something, an idea that comes from something. And uh, you and I and so many of our colleagues always talk about Star Trek uh, specifically, and also Star Wars as sort of being like what everything everything is happening now that we saw in Star Trek in the 60s, right? And so I think so much of, of where we're going is based on having that idea that maybe is a novel or maybe it's just a paragraph on a piece of paper, you know? Well, the thing that's most interesting about 
uh, Star Trek and about uh, how it succeeded and how it failed in in imagining the future. Uh, it succeeded in a lot of ways. You know, the 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 communicator became the cell phone. The hospital beds that they developed for the 1960s series were the inspiration for a lot of prototypes, particularly in military settings. What Star Trek and what virtually all uh, science fiction missed until the late 90s, early 2000s was the internet and was the this phenomenon that we all uh, have today, well, not all of us, but everyone who's online, which is most of the people in this country, of spending a large amount of our lives not in the real world, looking at screens, interacting with people who aren't there. And one of the reasons that science fiction movies and television shows didn't anticipate this is it's very hard to dramatize. Um, it's hard for uh, a TV show to convey urgency about someone looking at a screen, but uh, they're doing it increasingly. But that's the thing. It's also it's important to not only look at what they predicted effectively and, and provocatively. The other thing that I think Star Trek predicted that is only becoming clear right now is the ver the vocal interface with computers that it was in the 60s where people would talk to computers and computers would talk back to them, where computers would go nuts sometimes or get drunk. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that was, and then and when people would just have this kind of ambient computing, that which was always we there. now have. Right, that was always there. All right, well, we're going to come back in a moment to dig more into the work that you're doing around the future of transportation, keeping in mind that we're dealing with someone who is looking at research, who is a science fiction writer, <laughs> and once again, one of the biggest brains I know, Brad Barons. We'll be back in a moment on the Tech Cat Show. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform. Innovate. Create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. You have a message. You want to share that message. You want it to be social, to go viral, and spread across the planet. But how do you get started? Tune into Amplify, featuring host Ken Roshan. This show is here to help you take that message and channel it through the most effective marketing techniques to not only be successful, but have a positive impact on the world. Tune in live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel, and get Amplified. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to lori at techcat.tv. That's lori at techcat.tv. Hi, everybody, and we are back 
on the Tech Cat Show with the fabulous Brad Barons, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Center for Digital Future at USC Annenberg. And Brad, we were talking all about science fiction and Brad's background that really sets him up to, in many ways, be this uber futurist. And right now, he's digging deep into the future of transportation. So what's what's going to happen? Are, are we all going to be zipping around in pods like in Minority Report? Like, what, what am I going to get rid of my car? Well, I, I think the, those are two separate things. Uh, I, 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 yeah, it's it's astonishing. I want to know everything right now. Well, so, so do I, but uh, we have our limits. Uh, uh, it's astonishing to me how often Minority Report comes up. Still, it's uh, it was it hit something. I think particularly with people who are involved in marketing, uh, but it hit a nerve, and it it, it keeps on hitting that nerve. Uh, what we see. Uh, in the future of transportation work. And by the way, I just want to blurb this for a moment, that the report, the future of transportation report, should be coming out either this month, uh, July of 2017, or early next month in August. And we're very excited about it. We're excited about the data. We're excited about the analysis. It's free. Uh, And if you go to digitalcenter.org in a few weeks, you'll be able to download it. And we'll also be tweeting about it and making a fuss. So uh, that being said, with the anticipation, I now have to kind of deliver on on something that would make it worth downloading. And what we're seeing is a, a largely a two-stage revolution in transportation. The first stage is incredibly urgent, and that is what's happening with alternatives to owning your own car, like Uber and Lyft and Zipcar and Car2Go and newer services like Maven, where people can get around Uh, get around is another one, Uh, but uh, they don't need to own their own car in order to do so. Mm. And the second phase of the uh, two-stage revolution is, of course, uh, autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. There's so much press uh, about driverless cars that it kind of overwhelms the conversation. And I think frequently people don't look at the revolution that's happening right now. So here is one sort of bite-sized piece of data. When we asked people, would you be willing to give up driving altogether? 86% of Americans said no way, which seems quite conclusive. But when we change the question and we say, are you willing to give up owning your own car? That 86% drops to 80%. And then when we slice that data across people who regularly or even occasionally take services like Uber or Lyft or Cardigo or Zipcar, uh, then that 20% of consideration for giving up owning your own car doubles to 40%. And that is a huge finding. So what that says to us is that there is, for the first time, really since cars took over the world, there's a liquidity in how people are thinking about transportation. Uh, For the first time in a long time, people are thinking that they don't need to have a car in order to get around and service all of their needs. And this is during the most subsidized, cheapest version of these services. Because right now, Uber pays for 59% of the cost of every ride. The reason that they're incinerating football fields worth of money every quarter, billions of dollars, is because they're operating at an incredible loss. They're changing behavior very, very quickly in things like Uber and uh, like like Lyft, for example, and other services via um, places all over the world are following them. 
but they're changing the behavior uh, without a business model, without a revenue model, in the hopes that uh, by the time they actually have to have one, uh, all the taxi companies will already be out of business. Why do you think, um, I mean, Travis... um, um, Kanalik. Kanalik has been so in the news um, and now um, obviously exiting, exiting Uber... Um, but what what do you think is happening with these companies where where their leadership is so um, shaky? Uh, well, I, I think uh, Canalix leadership isn't shaky. It's immoral. It's been it's, <laughs> it's been very powerful and strong leadership. It just happens to have been powerful and strong in the wrong directions. Uh, and and so what we're seeing right now is a question uh, a question that silicon valley and wall street are sort of collectively starting to think about asking themselves which is what are the moral limits of capital uh, at what point does the the leveling quality of money run against the the needs that we have as a society to treat people fairly right. uh, and usually that is the realm of government not the realm of corporations but I think that Kanalik uh, is actually a huge distraction, you know. So yes, he's a jerk. You know, that's pretty obvious from everything that we've seen. Yes, he's a, a brilliant jerk who's a very powerful leader. But there are lots of CEOs in companies who are brilliant jerks, and that doesn't create the kind of problems that, that Uber is facing right now. The the problem with Uber. The thing that is making it quite vulnerable is not uh, the culture, because cultures can be fixed, and it's not the CEO, who, although he still uh, owns more of the company than anybody else and he ain't going anywhere, uh, is now uh, leaving as CEO. The problem is that Uber has two incredible problems. The first is it has this three-way balance between the needs of its riders, the needs of its drivers, and the needs of its investors, and not all of them can be satisfied by any uh, outcome. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that Uber uh, has invested all of its marketing capital, uh, all of its energy into marketing in branding as opposed to actual differentiation. Mm. Uber is entirely a commodity. There is no benefit to using Uber over and over again. It's, it's, it's not like uh, American Airlines or any airline with their frequent flyer miles uh, club. It's not even like Starbucks, which took an entirely transactional commodity product and layered data on it with their app so that you can do things like skip the line with your, your standard order. Um, Uber is not doing any of those things. So on the one hand, it has this uh, very delicate balance which will collapse um, uh, and at some point someone is going to be disappointed, uh, probably everybody. Um, and then on the other hand, there's no reason not to use other services. There's no benefit to loyalty with with Uber. Those are two big deals. Uh, I, I think also what I always find just across the board is that trend of um, founders not um, being the best at actually running the company in the simplest way in that, um, to your point about culture, but also they're just not experienced in managing people. And in, in modern life now, especially with these disruptive companies, you need to have a people officer and you need to have someone who is making sure that everyone's playing right and people are being treated well. And also you keep the smart brains and minds and great resources in your company wanting to be there, investing in it and having more 
you know, uh, millennial-esque like uh, things in the culture to keep people attached, you know? I understand what you're saying, but I think we could also look at Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who are, you know, Larry Page, one of the co-founders of Google, who uh, apprenticed himself to Eric Schmidt, who was the grown-up, but who then sort of retired to being an executive chairman. You can also look at Jeff Bezos, who is just uh, astonishingly capable as a CEO. Uh, it's, so it's not always the case. I think a lot of the time, the, the phenomenon you're talking about is really driven by venture capitalists who are looking for an exit. They're not necessarily interested in the health of the company. They're interested in the health of their investment. And so they need somebody who's going to be the grown-up because the grown-up is more invested in acquisition or IPO than in the nitty-gritty of the company. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's a really that's a really good point. I, I also do think that so many founders get booted out surpri- uh, surprisingly or hostily. Um, and a lot of it is what you just said, but I think a lot of it is also that if they were if they were Bezos or the Google guys, they'd still be there, but they're just you know not experienced. I mean, it's certainly something that my colleagues and I talk about all the time that you have these really smart um, engineers and technologists who are running companies and they just don't know how to do all the other things, you know? Right. Yeah. No one is smart in every direction. Uh, well, is, you are. No, 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 no. Quite, <laughs> quite the contrary. Just ask my family. Uh, but, <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. But I mean, and the other thing you wanted to know about just is, was driverless. And yes. This is... Uh, so much in the press and there are so many competing ideas we do user level attitude and behavior so we're not analyzing the trends we are but that's not the research that's what allows us to ask smart questions we're very focused on how people think about these things how they feel about them and with driverless cars the, the counterintuitive thing is that despite the fact that by and large no one's ridden in these things, they're not easily findable on most streets outside of Palo Alto and Pittsburgh, that the level of enthusiasm for driverless cars is huge. Uh, when we ask people if they'll give up their car, you know, by and large they say no. When we cut that across people who use Uber, there's a significant lift. When we ask people, well, what about when driverless cars come around? Then there's this incredible double-digit lift. Uh, People are ready to embrace driverless cars. We asked people if you ordered a cab or an Uber or some kind of a ride and it came to you and it was driven by nobody, what would you do? And the shocking thing was that only 39% of our respondents said, uh, hell no, I'm not getting in that car. The rest of them were either enthusiastic or neutral. 11% of people would just get in. They would just get into a car driven by a robot, even though that's never been an option in the history of the species. That 11% was a shockingly high number. Right, and, right. <clears throat> and then we asked another series of questions with things like, well, would you, uh, you know, have a restaurant meal? in a a self-driving car? Answer, 25% yes. Would you prefer to have a moving hotel where you get in at night, if you're going, say, from Los Angeles to San Francisco, car shows up, you get in, you get into bed, you wake up and you're, uh, you know, south of market. And that was over 25%. If you pull on that kind of thread and you think, okay, people are going to 
uh, be open to a, mo- a moving motel. So it's not a you know, motel is mobile hotel, but that was because you, you would drive there in your car. Now the car becomes the hotel. What kind of devastating impact does that have on the hotel industry? If suddenly people are riding around in these things in comfortable beds rather than, you know, uncomfortable on a Greyhound bus. On the other hand, what kind of exciting opportunities are there for uh, more conventional hotels and motels who might be able to rent a room out for an hour? Right now, the only time, reason people rent out a room for an hour is because uh, you know of prostitution, presumably. But in this case, you would show up and you'd need to freshen up before your big meeting of the day. Your, your self-driving car shows up, you get out, you go into a room, you shower, you dress, you press your clothes, you get back into your self-driving car, the hotel's made some money, and the car takes you to your destination huh um i love that scenario just for so many reasons just because um especially at night for me i don't like driving anymore so um i like that idea of just sort of having things on on demand like that all right we're going to take a a break and we'll we'll dig a little bit more into uh, the future of transportation with brad barons who's the chief strategy officer at the center for digital future at usc annenberg and also talk to brad a little bit about some other um marketing business um tech trends that are coming down the pike that are um he's learning all about from all the uh, great research that they're doing over there at uh, the center for digital future so we'll be back in a moment with the fabulous brad Barons, ladies and gentlemen. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform, innovate, create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. What is the forum? It's an engaged discussion with the forward-thinking experts in today's business world. Hosted by Seema Vasan, an entrepreneur and thought leader. This is a place where you can come to talk, ask, and trust. We're not looking to sell you anything, but we are here to tell you the truth. If you want to hear about honest perspectives and winning success stories, listen for The Forum, live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to lori at techcat.tv. That's lori at techcat.tv. Hi, everybody. And we are back on the Tech Cat Show. And we have been talking to the fabulous Brad Barons, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Center for the Digital Future at the USC Annenberg. And we were talking about the future of transportation. And um, Brad was sort of setting the stage for 
you know, what Uber is bringing, what trends are coming from, you know, this this idea of having an on-demand service where you don't have to drive to the other side of it, which is driverless cars. So what what happens next? Like what's coming down the pike now that we're in this world where everyone knows about Uber and driverless cars? What, what happens next? I think there's a, a tremendous amount of incredible changes that are going to happen. And some of them are going to be terrific and some of them are going to be scary. Uh, I think that if you're thinking about driverless cars and you think that, oh, generally speaking, uh, fewer and fewer people are going to be buying cars and more and more people are going to be leasing cars, having transportation on demand. That's not necessarily bad for the OEMs because if a car is in service 100% of the time, it's going to need a lot more maintenance, a lot more repairs, and it's going to have a shorter life than cars today where you know they're really only being used 10% of the time. At least that's a popular number. It's not one that I necessarily can stand on. The The question for me is is always to think about the platform that a technology creates. And so if driverless cars do become pervasive, the the issue is, as we were talking about before, what does it do to the hotel industry? Uh, what does it do to the movie industry? You know, it's hard to get people into th- out of their homes and into theaters these days, but we had uh, over 25% of our respondents saying that they would actually welcome watching a first-run movie in a car. Um, the question of what happens next is if you detach businesses from geography, how does that change the business? You could presume, presumably be a dentist in a van. Uh, for those of you who saw the movie The Lincoln Lawyer about a guy who does his, pra- his legal practice outside of the back of a Lincoln, uh, every uh, kind of professional could conceivably be doing this. You could get your teeth cleaned as you were going from home to work, for example. The, surprisingly, one of the least popular uh, options that we presented to people was uh, getting a beauty treatment. So getting your haircut, getting a, a facial, getting something done. Uh, and and I, I don't know why that is, although I suspect it's because there's a highly social component for uh, that kind of service that would be presumably disappearing if it was just one person in a car with the stylist. I love that too. Um, I love imagining um, everything just being so much easier and frictionless you know, in, in this area, because I, I went actually car shopping um, recently, and um, I was amazed at the simple change in the sales process, like just really simple, not like, you know, uh, sort of future um, at all, but just that the salesperson was texting me, you know, he was checking in with me and texting me, he asked if he could text, and so he was, instead of calling me, which would have been the what, what happened seven years ago when I bought my last car, he was just checking in, like, what can I do for you, you know what I mean, and I thought that simple change in the sort of sales process was really interesting, you know. I do think that's interesting. Uh, on the other hand, it also can be hugely invasive, uh, yes. particularly they, with salespeople. By the way, they did ask, which I thought sure. was but that's because it's a good salesperson as opposed right. to the vast majority of them. I am perhaps alone in uh, in our industry in thinking that this whole use of the word frictionless is a bad idea because friction is good when it comes to interpersonal friction. The friction that we have with our relationships, uh, you know, we are, if you think about sex, we are all, or most of us, are actually only here on this planet because of a, an act of friction. If you think about... <laughs> okay, I've never, heard it put, I've never heard it put that way before. That's awesome. 
Well, or think about the first time you hold your child, your first kiss, your first slow dance, the first time you hold hands with someone you care about. You think about uh, spending time with a friend over a meal. Think about taking a walk somewhere and not looking at your phone. Those are all high friction encounters. And a lot of the time, the activities we do are pretty arbitrary. What's important to us really is the company that we keep. Uh, Just last night, my wife and I showed our two kids. I have a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old. We all watched Tootsie, the classic 1982 Dustin Hoffman movie. And it ultimately didn't matter what movie we were watching. What mattered is that we were watching it together. And so the the downside of always thinking that uh, getting rid of friction is a good thing is that when you get rid of all of the friction, suddenly you're not uh, really f- uh, slowing down to look at who's sitting across from you at the table or who's with you on the, 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 the day-to-day journey that we have. Well, what other trends do you think um, are coming up that are significant to companies, brands, marketers right now that you think are going to really impact their business choices? Well, on the very practical side, um, we saw both Facebook and Google pivot their entire models from laptop and desktop onto mobile, Facebook more aggressively and I think, uh, you know, more quickly. And as that happened, the visual inventory available to marketers and advertisers went down significantly. There was a much bigger canvas on the desktop or the laptop and on the mobile uh, mobile screen, there's cons- much less. We're about to see uh, some more pressure on that visual inventory for display advertising, for sponsored listings, for things that are clickable. Uh, and it's going to go in two directions at once. Uh, first, what I think we're going to see is an even greater reduction in uh, visual inventory as things like Siri and Alexa and Cortana and all of the other digital assistants, this kind of rudimentary AI that's creating the touchless internet where you don't have to look at it, you don't have to uh, to click anything, you can just say, you know, hey Siri, what's the weather? Um, hey Siri, what's playing at the movie theater? And in the past, there was all of this peripheral information that really was how Google monetized so powerfully. Uh, And that's going to go away as people do more and more talking to the internet and less and less time touching it and looking at it. On the other hand, anytime you have a container, you have a device, you don't want to mistake the device for the set of actions that, that the device represents. And, you know, a classic example of this is we've never been more interested in news in this country, particularly right. since the, the presidential election, but not that many people are reading newspapers on paper. We're clicking around with news. What I want to know is what happens after the smartphone disappears? Because I think with heads-up display screens that you wear uh, and different kinds of input technology like gloves or virtual keyboards, that we're going to have the phone as the thing we're looking at all the time turn into what some people call a personal area network or a PAN. And in that case, when you have a screen that you're wearing on your face all the time. Oh, wow. (laughs) Suddenly you've got a lot of visual inventory for advertisers. And now we've come full circle back to Minority Report. But the difference, of course, is that in the Minority Report, all of that advertising was ambient. It was in the environment and hyper-customized to people as they walked by. Uh, What we're seeing, I think, with heads-up display are things that are hyper-personalized, hyper-customized, 
and invisible to everyone else. That is one of the biggest things that's going to happen. And it's good for marketers and bad for marketers, which is that our shared reality is attenuating. You and I, if we're both standing there looking through our heads up display glasses at something, could be seeing entirely different things. And on the one hand, uh, that's good because super duper precise uh, advertising messages, it's creepy, but it's effective, uh, could be sent to us in our uh, glasses. On the other hand, the most powerful thing about marketing right now, the most powerful kind of marketing is word of mouth. And if we're not seeing the same thing, then word of mouth becomes more challenging. So this, uh, this stuff is going to be changing and we're really not going to be able to know where it lands, but we, we get some good sense of where it's going. Awesome sauce. Um, And are you someone um, like many of my interviewees have been in the last year that is obsessed with certain um, technology trends like VR and AR? Uh, I am a VR skeptic. I am a ARMR enthusiast. And uh, if you just to go over this briefly, there's you know, augmented reality, mixed reality, and virtual reality. With augmented reality being the least immersive, and virtual reality being the most immersive. And I think that virtual reality is more like video games. It's more like 3D TV, where it's a powerful niche, but it's a niche. And I think that with uh, with the limitation being that some people get sick, uh, and some people just don't want to be a disembodied headless ghost wandering around. The the lack of uh, overlap between the reality we're sitting in and the reality that's being beamed into our eyes is a profound limitation. The thing about AR and MR, augmented and mixed reality, is that they're more acutely social. And what we've seen again and again and again is that things explode in popularity and uptake if they're social. Uh, Once Facebook started making it possible for people to share photographs, their uh, growth rate increased by orders of magnitude. And that's true with Instagram, that's true with Snapchat. Uh, And so the more social a technology platform is, the more likely it is to grow quickly. And by and large, VR is less social than AR and MR. And I also heard, at uh, Augmented uh, World Expo that uh, a lot of um, the professionals are now referring to mixed reality as X-reality, which to me spoke of porn, but apparently that's the direction that some of the nomenclature is moving in. I don't know if you've heard that yet. I I haven't heard that. I agree that it does sound unnecessarily salacious. Uh, It's also one of those things where if you hear it, it's less effective than if you see it because X-reality sounds like something that used to be reality, but is no longer. (laughs) Which in many ways is going to be what, what, what will happen if getting back to our science fiction discussions, you think about Gibson and all the stuff that happened. But um, all right, well, we're going to be back in a moment, and um, I want to talk a little bit more about where y- where you go to learn about and keep up with everything, and then also maybe where we can go and um, hear you speak and keep up with, with some of the great work that you're doing, um, because there's so many shows right now, there's so many things to read, it would be great if you helped our listeners sort of understand how does a futurist keep up with all this, what are some of your habits and behaviors around taking in 
input and then being able to process it and distribute it out in, in, in usable insights. So we're going to be back um, in a moment with the fabulous Brad Barons, who's the Chief Strategy Officer, and I'm going to say it right this time, at the Center for the Digital Future at USC Annenberg. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform, innovate, create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. If you're looking for an in-depth, thought-provoking discussion about leadership, tune in to Bernard E. Robinson's The Leadership Forum, making an impact through effective leadership. Each program provides an intelligent, conversational experience about leadership from Bernard, his guests, and you. If you're interested in improving the quality of leadership in your organization, listen live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time for the Leadership Forum on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to lori at techcat.tv. That's lori at techcat.tv. And we're back now with the fabulous Brad Barons. And Brad is a true futurist. Um, he's Chief Strategy Officer at the Center for the Digital Future at USC Annenberg. And so one of the questions I always like to ask um, everyone who comes on the show is what are they reading, doing, you know, what, what things do they subscribe to? How do they keep up? Because as a futurist, you not only have to understand what's happening today, but you also have to be able to speculate and sort of combine all of this information to be able to look at the future. So what, what, are, what are you reading and consuming to do that? I, I have a, a Pac-Man-like quality where I just do consume a tremendous amount of information. And the problem, of course, is that it's never enough. You know, I subscribe to three different newspapers, myriad magazines, uh, you know, overflowing tweets and Facebook, uh, read lots of books. But uh, ultimately, there's no way of getting your head around all of it. The, the question really, I think, is ultimately uh, stopping that the hardest thing to do is to not open up your phone or uh, your computer first thing in the morning, for example. Uh, that time, first thing in the morning, I usually get up before everybody else in my house gets up. And if I open my phone uh, or look at a computer, then I've failed. That's the time to, to write, to read a book. I really think that print slows us down, uh, whether it's an article uh, or, or uh, you know, a book uh, or a journal. Uh, but uh, the, the hardest thing is actually to not uh, mainline information. Now, that being said, 
Uh, I read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, their business coverage is astonishing. Uh, the Washington Post uh, is doing incredible work. There is also, you know, Digital Trends and Futurism.com. Uh, you know, podcasts like this one are always reliable. Uh, and again, the nice thing about podcasts is because they happen in time and you can do them while you're doing the dishes or at the gym or what have you, uh, certain things seep into your consciousness the way that they might not if you were just skimming quickly uh, online. Um, I will also say recently a friend of mine, uh, my friend Leslie Ann Long, introduced me to the Sam Harris podcast, which is a very thoughtful hour, which really kind of explores things from lots and lots of different directions. Um, and uh, the thing about the internet, the thing about the mobile phones and tablets is that these things are digital candy compared to analog vegetables. And it's <laughs> very hard to not pick these things up. Uh, there was this, this brain drain journal article that came out in April that said that even if your uh, mobile phone is powered down, face down, on your desk, the very existence of it as uh, an artifact in your consciousness, in your surroundings, reduces your cognitive productivity by a lot. Uh, And so you actually have to like put it in the next room or put it in a bag somewhere. So uh, the, the challenge for us all is to create environments where we don't have to make decisions to turn those things off because every one of those decisions, you know, bleeds away a certain amount of willpower that's not coming back. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you could, I could lose a whole day in, you know, snacking on all of that information, but I'm so conscious of the fact that I'm doing it that I have to sort of set limits on it. I mean, are you someone when you're doing your Pac-Man thing that it's a certain time every day? I mean, do you have like those kind of habits? Uh, during the school year, when my uh, children's schedule is more predictable and my schedule is therefore more predictable, then yes, uh, summers are a very chaotic time, a delightful time, but a chaotic time. But the my goal is never to check email uh, or anything online until I've been up for about two or three hours. I fail at this constantly, but, <laughs> but that is at least the goal. Uh, that that is a great goal. I don't. I can't do it. I've been getting better at trying to carve out a morning or two just to to take care of you know yourself, but or your kids. Um, isn't that a problem, Lori? I mean, isn't it like an impossibly vexing conundrum that all of us are having to constantly create these moats around ourselves in order to have the kind of interaction and relationship with our environment that we have had for hundreds of thousands of years? It takes so much effort to to find quiet uh, or just quiet where it's only other people and, and dogs and birds and things as opposed to this you know, unremitting uh, Niagara of interruptions that is killing us. I, I mean, because you're a writer, you put it so beautifully, but really my solution to all of this is just tequila and then I'm fine. <laughs> so so um, tequila and, uh, you know, some sunshine. Um, what about where are you writing, blogging, tweeting? I mean, do you, do you have certain um, places that we can check out? to, to well, wrap you into our, our uh, curation? 
despite uh, all of the nasty things I just said about social media, the the fastest way to find out what I'm up to is on Twitter. Um, we are building out our columns uh, and our, our weekly content at the center. So you'll be able to see uh, two or three columns a month by me and then columns by many other people at digitalcenter.org. Uh, don't, don't go yet, but that's coming real soon. I write... Uh, at uh, the drum and and other places, and so you know, I'm easy to find. Uh, Bradbarons.com is my you know my site where it's always uh, a quick way of finding out what I'm up to, and uh, you can also kind of look around on YouTube. There's a plenty of videos of me nattering on, uh, usually wearing a sport jacket and funky shoes. <laughs> the funky shoes is what I like is my favorite part um, and what about um, last note where are you going to be what shows are you to make sure that you attend in the next six months uh, well I'm helping to produce the DMA's show and then which will be in October in New Orleans and I'm also giving a big trends presentation there uh, I'm usually uh, able to be found at uh, interesting shows about digital media um, but uh you know, it. what I'm actually going into right now is a pretty deep research mode where I'm going to be uh, inundated by data for the next several weeks and not really thinking about uh, other things until I, I uh, break surface again. Um, the, the thing that I'm most eager for people to do is you know, at the end of July, please check out the future transportation report at digitalcenter.org. It's exciting and I think it will be uh, useful for many people. And can people email you or you want them to go to the website? Oh, no. You can always email me. The fastest way to reach me is to actually fill in the contact form at bradbarons.com. I'm readily, easily uh, findable on LinkedIn. Um, And uh, the reason for the contact form is just that other people are also looking at it so that if I am buried in research, someone will find it. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. And then also uh, keep aware when the uh, the um, Center for the Digital Future um, launches its site so we can all be um, constantly reading the, the great stuff that you guys are producing. Uh, that is our goal, yes. That's fantastic. Well, we have been uh, listening to Brad Barons, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Center for the Digital Future at USC Annenberg, who's been dropping some great insights on how to look at the future, specifically the future of transportation, and, and just sort of setting the stage for, you know, the world that is coming um, with lots of great insights on on how we can keep up with all of it and how important it is to to put it all in perspective. And as Brad just so wisely said, um, find time to disconnect as well, whether you choose my particular method, which is tequila, or Brad's, which is, you know, not jumping o- online until, you know, a couple hours into the morning when, when life has happened and, uh, and you're able to do that. So, Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the Tech Cat Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we'll be back next week with hopefully someone just as witty um, and smart as Brad Barron's on the Tech Cat Show. See you guys or hear you guys or speak to you guys in a week. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Cat Show. Please join Lori H. Schwartz again for another great program next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel and syndicated to the Voice America Women's Channel. 